Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Kristen Seavey. This is Murder, She Told. This is part two of the Mary Tanner story. If you haven't listened to part one, I suggest going back and starting with that one first. On Saturday morning, Charles Sr. woke up to the loud sound of birds chirping and someone mowing the lawn. He looked at his clock to find it was well past 5 a.m., and Mary hadn't woken him for the drive to Waltham. Groggy, Charles forced himself out of bed to see if his daughter had made it home, but she wasn't curled up in her bed or making coffee in the kitchen. He knew how important it was to Mary to get down to Massachusetts, so he figured she must have gotten a ride the previous evening. Meanwhile, in Waltham, Michael Higgins was burying his younger brother, Tommy who was just 18 years old when he died earlier that week. He was thinking back to Monday, July 3rd, the day of the accident. Michael was driving right behind his brother on the main turnpike as they were all headed to Kennebunk to attend a party. Tommy and his friend Bobby, who was with him in the car, lost control of the vehicle and hit a guardrail. The force of the crash ejected them both from the vehicle and they died on impact. Michael had gone to Glenmore to see Mary, and she comforted him. They spent the evening together before his friend's father gave Mary a ride home. The next morning, which was the 4th of July, Michael went to church. After the morning service, he went over to Mary's house and spent time with her. He recalled the warmth of her mother, surely enveloping him into a big hug. He kissed Mary goodbye and he had no idea it would be the last time he would see her alive. He left for Massachusetts that day. On Thursday, he called Mary with the details of the funeral, and she told him that she would be there on Saturday. But Mary hadn't arrived. Michael was angry and confused, but surrounded by family. He tried to put her absence out of his mind and focus on the task at hand. Back in Kennebunk, the Tanner family went about their daily routine, assuming Mary was with Michael. That evening, another party took place. This one was a keg party at a spot the local kids called Number 10. It was a wooded area just off Gracie Evans Field, the same field where Mary's body would be discovered the following afternoon. They drank, danced, smoked, and chatted all without having any idea their friend lay lifeless nearby. Tim Ames was among the partygoers, and he recalled that one of his female friends had passed out and spent the night in the field camping herself. He remembered it after so many years because he swung by the next morning to pick her up to go hiking in the White Mountains. Who knows how close she slept to Mary Tanner. 
Mary's body was discovered later that afternoon and identified on Monday night. Michael, by that time, had arrived in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where he was planning to spend some time with his uncle to get away from things for a while. They got a call from Kenny Bunk with the devastating news of Mary's death. Michael's uncle came into his room and told him, You know, sometimes life sucks, but you've got to suck it up. You can't let it beat you. Michael was on the next flight out, back to Maine, to bury his girlfriend. He was stunned to learn that Mary had been three months pregnant with his child. According to Mary's friends, she planned to tell him after his brother's funeral. She never got that chance. A team of state police detectives and local cops manned their command center at Park Street School, working 12 to 14-hour shifts every day that week. Sergeant Lawrence Gross, who at that time was a 10-year veteran with the state police, said, The fatigue was tremendous. We worked a minimum of 100 hours the first week. They brought Michael in for questioning and asked if he would submit to a polygraph. He readily agreed, and Mary's father, Charles Sr., drove him to Portland to sit for the test. He passed, and after the interrogation, the cops said that he was no longer a suspect in Mary's death. On Wednesday, July 12th, the York County Coast Star printed Mary's obituary in their morning paper. The plain, direct language revealed nothing of the devastation that her death had caused. The funeral home that was handling her death, Bibber Memorial Chapel, was in Kennebunk, just a couple of miles from the Tanner home. They held visitation on Wednesday evening, and on Thursday, July 13th, five days after Mary's death, her family arranged to have a closed-casket funeral mass. At 2 p.m., the church bells rang, and one by one, family, friends, and members of the community wishing to show their love and support for the Tanners walked into the gray, ornate, Victorian-style building. Mary's favorite flower was the lilac, and though their spring blooms had already faded, attendees were called the scent of flowers everywhere. Once inside, away from the brutal humidity, sweat and tears mingled on the faces of the mourners. Shirley and Charles walked hand in hand, sobbing and dreading what every parent fears most, laying their child to rest. A framed photo of Mary sat atop her casket. The minister appeared, blessing her with holy water and delivering a message of hope in the face of death. He followed by reading the Ten Commandments. The fifth one, Thou shalt not murder, seemed heavy under the circumstances, and perhaps, to some, a reminder that justice had not yet been served. Some wondered if the killer was driving by out of curiosity, or perhaps sitting in the crowd. The day after Mary's funeral, Friday, July 14th, Police set up a roadblock at Cooper's Corner. They picked Friday night because it was the same time of day and the same day of the week of Mary's disappearance. They stopped all traffic and presented a color photo of Mary, asking drivers if they had seen her one week prior. On Monday, State Police Lieutenant Ray LaMontagne told the press that it had turned up nothing. 
State Medical Examiner Henry Ryan told the York County Co-Star that they had collected and analyzed fingernail scrapings, but the results of that examination were never publicly revealed. Police, by this point, had questioned 200 people, administered several polygraph exams, and checked numerous alibis. On Tuesday, a group of 21 men, made up of four wildlife and fish rangers, Kennebunk police, and nine state officers, spent the majority of the day searching Gracie Evans' field. They walked four miles one way up and down the road, combed bushes, checked trees, and crossed the town line from Lyman into Kennebunk but nothing else was found. By nightfall, the group put an end to the search. Detective Sergeant Lawrence Gross said that they had found nothing, not even a scrap of someone else's clothing. It had been 11 days since Charles watched his little girl walk out the door with his handkerchief wrapped tightly around her head. Investigators hadn't found any of Mary's clothing. Her shoes, jeans, and bandana were still missing. Charles told detectives that she may have had a pocketbook or canvas bag on her, but none of that had been found either. They continued to run down every lead and manned their command post 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. daily, but the investigation was running out of steam. In the second week, police got a break. Two kids who were 12 and 14 years old found some abandoned clothes while they were walking around West Kennebunk Village. It was reported at the time that it was a towel and shoes. Later, in 2013, it was reported that a pair of Levi's brand blue corduroy jeans were recovered. It's unclear if this is referring to the same discovery. Either way, Police were quick to say that in 1978, there was no apparent connection to Mary. By the end of the second week, police shut down their command post and started pulling staff. As 1978 was coming to a close, a group of anonymous organizers raised some money for a reward fund. They stipulated that if the money wasn't claimed by January 1st, approximately one year later, the fund would be converted into an ongoing scholarship in Mary's name that would be given to a deserving Kennebunk High School student. The reward fund grew in 1979 to just over $800, and the deadline was extended to 1982. But that day came and went. Police would provide periodic updates to the press. In August of 1980, the Maine State Police said that they still had an investigator who spent two to three days a week on the case. Sergeant Gross said that the scope of the investigation was unreal but unproductive. He said that they were regularly in contact with Mary's parents and that they were surprisingly understanding that there hadn't been an arrest yet. Three years later, in 1983, Sergeant Gross introduced Detective Peter Herring, saying, Sometimes a new man brings a brand new perspective on the case. There were always things that were missed, leads that were never dug into deeply enough, and leads that need to be rechecked. Peter Herring would not solve the case, and it would be reassigned again and again. Every year around the anniversary of Mary's death, Kennebunkport hosted their annual dump parade celebration. It continued to grow 
1982 might have been the biggest year in its history. National press outlets, including the Today Show, covered the event. Congressmen attended. Two or 3,000 fans lined the streets. A reporter for the Biddeford Journal-Tribune declared the Kennebunkport dump parade has made the big time. Other hilarious floats included one from Shields Meat and Produce, with the tagline, You kill em, we chill em, and a local farmer's float which showcased a 970-pound pig named Jimmy Dean. The parade also had a couple of touching moments. A truck full of young men who worked at the Shawmut Inn dedicated their float to the memory of Mary Tanner. Many of her classmates were getting older and getting jobs in the area. She had not been forgotten. In July of 1996, a strange tip came into the Main State Police. An informant encouraged them to check the bed of an old, rusty pickup truck parked at a farmhouse in Arundel, the next town over. And in August, the police did just that. The owner of the property on Log Cabin Road gave the police permission to search. There was a rusted green pickup bed on the property, covered with leaves, spare tailgates, pipes, and other junk. The owner said it had been there for about 10 years and attributed it to his nephew. State police detective Brian McDonough said that they took paint samples from the truck and would compare them to evidence collected back in 1978. Just one month later, in August of 1996, Charles Sr. gave his one and only interview to the press about Mary. He was 79 years old, and he'd been diagnosed with cancer and didn't have much time left. In speaking to Bill Nemitz with the Portland Press-Herald, he said, This is the first time I've ever talked to anyone about her like this. Bill explained in his article... Charles Sr. was trying to find words for the anger that had smoldered inside him for so long. Maybe we can straighten a few things out, he began. It wasn't so much what was said, but what was unsaid. He continued, The papers never said she was a good kid, who was known throughout this close-knit town, not for her wild ways, but for her quick smile and generous heart. He related a story that showcased Mary's kindness and humor. I remember there was this fellow in town who was kind of slow, kind of the town character. He used to go along the street downtown, picking up cigarette butts to smoke. So Mary started taking fresh cigarettes and putting them in plastic bags, hiding them under a bench where she knew he'd find them. She didn't like seeing him smoke those butts. That's just the kind of kid she was. Charles remembered coming home from work, sometimes late at night, and making the rounds to the kids' rooms before bed to find Mary sleeping, nose to nose, with her cat, Sam. He concluded the interview, his voice breaking, saying, A day hasn't gone by that I haven't thought of her. Just a month later, on September 12, 1996, Charles Sr. passed away at a Portland hospital. He was buried next to Mary at Greenwood Cemetery in Biddeford. Charles Sr. had been a vibrant part of the community, a lifelong member of the Masons and later a Shriner. He worked at the Shrine Circus, was a bartender at the Shrine Club, and participated in 165 parades. 
He was a World War II veteran, and after his career in the Army, he worked as a nuclear power inspector for the Portsmouth Naval Shipyard until his retirement in 1981. He was a beloved member of Kenny Bunk. In 2011, Shirley joined him at the age of 92. Both of Mary's parents died without knowing their daughter's killer. Twenty thirteen was a big year for Mary's case and her legacy. It was the thirty fifth anniversary of her murder, and many of her friends and family came together to revitalize her case. Facebook had taken hold with her generation, and in March of twenty thirteen, the Facebook page Justice for Mary was launched. Within days, there were dozens of people who had joined, and within months, there were hundreds. Longtime Kennebunk resident Shelley Wigglesworth, who was nine at the time of Mary's death, began writing about her case. Mary's older brother, Charlie Jr., credited Shelley's article as, quote, the spark that energized the movement. Rick O'Neill, who had a long career at the Portland Press-Herald, wrote a 3,000-word feature, one of the most thorough tellings to date, in June of 2013 in a local paper called the Kennebunk Village. The group made custom t-shirts, bumper stickers, posters, and wristbands to commemorate her life and fight for justice. They had a bench installed in her honor in Rotary Park, made possible by the generous $2,000 donation of Kennebunk resident Craig Tufts. The park is only steps away from the Mousam River Bridge where Mary was last seen. It bears a small bronze plaque that reads, in loving memory of Mary Ellen Tanner, Kenny Bunk's child. They have organized candlelight vigils, prayer services, and marches. They raised money to sustain the annual scholarship at Kenny Bunk High School in her name. The Tanner home on Cat Mousam Road was purchased by the Maine Turnpike Authority, but the lilacs that Mary loved still remained. The activists had them transplanted to preserve and showcase their beauty in her memory. On February 20th, 2014, in Augusta, Maine, Charlie Jr. sat in room 438 of the state capitol building, waiting to testify about the importance of a cold case bill. He had joined other victims' families in support of this new legislation. Supporters believed that advances in forensic technology could provide answers in decades-old investigations. If the bill passed, an active cold case unit comprised of a prosecutor, police detectives, and a crime lab technician would be created and might finally bring answers to his sister's murder. Charlie told WCHS News, it would be nice to finally close that door. It's been 35 long years, and it doesn't get any easier. You never get over it. You just get past it. We want to make sure that whoever did this can't do it again to someone else. The only issue was the cost. Taxpayers would need to fund a $450,000 yearly budget. Art Jett, of the main chapter of Parents of Murdered Children, stressed the importance of the public safety. Imagine, if you will, a hundred or more murderers who were released from prison or escaped. We would want to make sure to gather them up as quickly as we could. But this is even worse, because we don't even know who they are. Both houses of legislature passed the bill, but Governor Paul LePage vetoed it. It went back for a second vote, and the veto was overridden. 
putting the law into action. Rick O'Neill, a journalist and videographer, was struck by Mary's story and the outflow of support from the community. He decided he wanted to make a full-length documentary on her case called Girl on the Bridge. He said, I'm making this film because Mary Tanner spoke to me with an urgency and directness that I couldn't ignore, explaining that instead of focusing on the gruesome details of her death, he wanted to document Mary's brief but brilliant life. He began by securing interviews with many of Mary's friends and family and put together a short trailer for the film. He, alongside the community, created the Mary Tanner Foundation, a charitable organization that would raise the money for and hold the copyright for the completed film. He estimated that the total cost of the production would be about $125,000. He envisioned that it would debut at film festivals, and if performed well, he hoped that it would be picked up for distribution, with all proceeds to be, quote, dispersed to charitable causes in Mary Tanner's memory. As he got into production, he ended up uncovering information that had never before been reported. A lot of details in this episode are from publicly released snippets of interviews that he has conducted with those people who have firsthand knowledge of the case. One of the key discrepancies is the timing when Mary left the party on the hill and went to Cooper's Corner. Contemporary newspaper coverage indicated that it was 11.30 p.m., but there were interview subjects who said it was closer to 9 p.m., which begged the question, what did she do between the hours of 9 p.m. to midnight when she was last seen? Another friend of Mary's recalled seeing her head toward Gooch's Beach with some friends, which was about a one-mile walk from Cooper's Corner. Bill Lawrence, another friend, was sitting on a rock wall at Gooch's Beach, drinking a beer with a friend, when he saw her approaching in the distance, they yelled out to one another. She came over and chatted with him for a few minutes. She said she was going to hitchhike back home, and Bill said that he'd come with her after he finished his beer. But she was gone before he knew it, getting into a car with three other people he didn't recognize. Bill shared that it was a great regret of his that he let her leave alone that night. Regardless of the order of events that Friday night, if the final sighting of Mary on the Malsum River Bridge is to be believed, then the last people to see her alive that have come forward were the Wormwood sisters, Corinne and Celeste, who saw her at midnight just a mile from her home. Even more confusing in this case, though, are modern accounts from people who claim to have seen Mary on Saturday, July 8th. I include them here to offer their stories but there are some major hurdles to overcome to make these fit with the rest of her story. A friend of Mary's, Jane Needham, thought she saw Mary at the party at number 10 on Saturday night. She wrote, The memory I see is her standing behind someone's back. She called me over and asked if I'd seen some particular person at the party. She was hiding from this somebody. Jane's father gave a hitchhiker a ride quote, later that weekend during the daylight, and she looked like the Tanner girl. Shelley Wigglesworth said in a Facebook comment on the Justice for Mary page that she was contacted by several acquaintances of Mary's who saw her at the Five and Dime in Kennebunk Village on Saturday. They said that she was waiting for a ride from an older local man. The girls all thought it was odd because the man was old enough to be her father, 
His identity was reported to authorities. If these stories are true, and Mary was alive Saturday night, there are some things to grapple with. Number one, Mary must have slept somewhere on Friday night that was not at her home. No one has come forward to identify this location. Number two, Mary would have voluntarily missed her boyfriend's brother's funeral in Waltham, something that meant a lot to her that she had previously committed to attend. Number three, Mary's body, discovered on Sunday afternoon, had shown significant signs of decay. If she hadn't died until the late evening of Saturday night, she would have only been gone for, at most, 15 hours. The medical examiner estimated the time of her death in days, not hours. Number four, the state police in 1978, during the investigation, were told by witnesses that they saw Mary on Saturday, and this was their appraisal of those accounts. Interviews with four witnesses who placed Mary Tanner at the party at number 10 have subsequently indicated that they were unsure of their earlier statements. Her presence there has not been satisfactorily established. In the 45 years since Mary Tanner's death, the Maine State Police have never publicly named a suspect, but Kennebunk town residents have quietly speculated. Lloyd Perry was carefully scrutinized in the early investigation. Some people referred to the party on Saturday night at number 10 as, quote, Lloyd's party or Lloyd's kegger. He said in his interview with Rick O'Neill, I was a hellraiser. I used to have fast cars, loud cars, racing here, racing there. The police chief used to pull me over. The police, in his initial interview, had more investigators present and more cameras on him than in their typical questionings. They gave him a polygraph. In his modern interview, Lloyd denies that it was his party and, with tears in his eyes, claims he is still baffled as to why his name ever came up. Police have never named Lloyd, and the only connection that he appears to have with Mary's death is a familiarity with the location where her body was discovered, and the unlucky timing of having been involved with the organization of a party nearby. Another name that's come up is Bruce Foley, he was 12 years Mary's senior, Kennebunk High School class of 1967. He was out on bail at the time of Mary's death pending the appeal of a sexual assault charge to the Maine Supreme Court. Several women in town have stories about Bruce's stalking, violence, and sexual aggression growing up, and he was later convicted of holding a woman against her will and raping her. Under Minnesota law, he was classified as a sexual psychopath and a sexually dangerous person. Rick O'Neill traveled to Minnesota to interview him in prison in November of 2016. He denied having anything to do with Mary's death. Mary's sister, Beth, and others have said that Bruce had an alibi that was confirmed by the police, and they don't believe Bruce was involved. In 2019, he died, maintaining his innocence until his death. Kennebunk residents have bandied about names of potential suspects for years, and they all have one thing in common. They're local. The state police believe it was someone local, too. Tim Ames said in 2013, 
I'm pretty certain it was one of us. I've heard the names of several guys over the years, and sometimes I'll see them and think, are you the one? The Tanner family, in particular Beth, believes she knows who killed her sister, though she has never named that individual publicly. It's unclear if there's any DNA evidence in this case, as it's been reported two different ways. In June of 2013, one of the Tanners said that it would still come down to a confession case. There isn't enough DNA evidence to do any good. But Beth, in an interview with the podcast Locating the Lost in 2022, said that there was some DNA evidence. Details of what happened to Mary that night are still debated. To me, the most likely scenario is that Mary got a ride with someone, probably a local man that she was familiar with, who took her to an isolated location where she was sexually assaulted and beaten to death. He then put her in his vehicle, drove her to Gracie Evans Field, and dumped her naked body in the wee hours of Saturday morning. Perhaps this same killer struck eight years prior when he picked up Mary Olinchuk to give her a ride too. That same killer may still be alive, living a quiet life in Kennebunk today. Residents still remember how Mary's death shook the town in 1978. Tim Ames said, part of the whole town died that day. Things changed after Mary's death. Tim continued, everybody was watching everybody after that. Parents didn't let their kids stay out after the streetlights came on and people started locking their doors. Shelley Wigglesworth said, Everybody was scared, shocked, looking over their shoulders and wondering, is it someone we knew? Their paranoia lingers even today. Dawn, Mary's best friend, quit school after her death. She told Rick in an interview, I couldn't go back to school. I had to go to night school. I just didn't want people coming up to me. Jackie O'Keefe addressed the trauma of losing her friend. We choked it back and swallowed it down. We didn't get counseling for it. We just grieved quietly. Some in the community put it out of their minds, in a box, on a shelf, and didn't open it for 35 years. Some people blamed the Tanner family or the new generation of kids, or Mary Tanner herself. But to them, Lori Cray said, she was one of us. It could have been any one of us. Mary's bench in Rotary Park speaks to the shared sense of responsibility of the community to seek justice and honor her by inscribing it with the words, Kenny Bunk's child. Some of her friends wondered why she was taken and not them instead. Her friend Jane said in an interview with Rick that Mary's mom, Shirley, came to her wedding and she almost felt guilty in her happiness because she knew that Mary would never have that opportunity. Jane wonders if it's fear that stops people from speaking out today. She said, I think that a lot of people are scared. They don't want to say what they know, and it makes me really mad. The people that have come forward, I would say 90% of them are women, even though men are supposed to be the brave ones. The perseverance of the family and the community is inspiring. If you scroll the Justice for Mary Facebook page, you'll see posts of other cold cases from long ago being solved today. Each of those victories help keeps their hopes alive. July 7th, 2023, 
marks the 45th anniversary of Mary's death, and they are still fighting for justice. Today, all that's left of Mary's life are memories. Her friend Marilyn remembers Mary's daring nature. One day, we were outside on the playground at elementary school. We were puzzled why the boys got to wear warm pants to school, which enabled them to play outside, while we were left to huddle against the cold since our skirts and dresses provided little warmth during the main winter. Mary and I were mad. We agreed that the next day we would wear pants under our skirts. We would meet outside school and walk in together. I remember how funny we felt. We were both caught and hauled down to the principal's office. I remember Mary telling me, don't worry, we'll get out of this. And I don't remember a punishment, but I do clearly remember that in fourth grade, we got to wear pants. Her friend Roxanne remembers typing class. Mary would sit right behind her and she would quietly ask, Hey Rocky, sit back a little so I can sleep. Typing class was Mary's nap time. Mary's mother said, For 18 years and three weeks, Mary had a good time. Her sister Beth said that her favorite song was a duet by Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis Jr., released in 1976, called You Don't Have to Be a Star. It has a distinctive 70s vibe. A nice groove, tambourine, flute licks, and Motown-inspired backup vocals. Its refrain is, You don't have to be a star to be in my show. It's all about a quiet love that is humble and timeless. I can't help but think of Mary's boyfriend and the love that he was robbed of. Michael revealed in an intimate interview that he's only loved three women in his life, and Mary was the first. Though they were quite young, there were talks of marriage. Perhaps Michael and Mary, in the spirit of love that permeated the 70s, dreamt of sharing a quiet love with a child that was never to be. Mary's sister, Gail, before her death, said, She was our little sister. She was a wonderful kid. Everything she did, she did with love. If you have any information about the murder of Mary Ellen Tanner, I urge you to come forward and speak with the Maine State Police Major Crimes Unit South at 207-624-7076 or leave a tip at the link in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. If you are loving Murder, She Told, I want to encourage you to share it with a friend. If you want to support the show in another way, there's a link in the show notes with options. Follow Murder, She Told on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Head to MurderSheTold.com for a detailed list of sources and photos from this episode and more. Thank you to Byron Willis and Zoe Stockwell for their writing and research, and Sophie Ricker for her research support. If you have a case suggestion or a correction, feel free to email me at hello at MurderSheTold.com. I'm Kristen Seavey, and this is Murder, She Told. Thank you for listening. Thank you.